0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armazón. Today, we have a great guest and an industry veteran. We are joined by Sandy Kemper, founder, chairman, and CEO of C2FO, the world's largest platform for working capital finance. C2FO serves over a million businesses, representing over $10 trillion in annual sales across more than 180 countries, and their platform connects over $100 billion of daily volume. Truly a global financial powerhouse. C2FO is a series G company and has raised hundreds of millions of dollars from elite investors like Temasek, Union Square Ventures, SoftBank, Allianz, City Ventures, Tiger Global, and many, many more. Sandy has had a long and successful career in banking, technology, fintech, and asset management. And he even told us how he turned his art collecting passion into a profitable business. Finally, please be aware that Sandy's audio is a little bit choppy, but his valuable insights are definitely worth the listen. And now join me an amazing interview with Sandy Kemper. Sandy, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. We're excited to have you here all the way from Kansas City, I assume. Can we start by yeah. hearing a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Uh, I thought you were going to ask if we could start by hearing a little bit of the sounds of the ranch where I live. And I could open up the window, but yes, all the way from Kansas City where you're sequestered, Safely in your apartment or condo in New York and get to sequester in a a, a very large farmland with animals and all sorts of other distractions. C2FO. Well, first, you know, I used to be a banker. And as a banker, my job was to find ways to bring capital. I came up on the lending side of the business, later became CEO and chairman. But when I was younger, my job was to find ways to get mostly working capital to companies that needed it. And it was very early on in my career, and I was getting turned down for some of the loans that I thought maybe should have been made. I became more fully aware of some of the, the deleterious effects of risk-based underwriting relative to accounts receivable and accounts payable. So it's a long-winded way of saying, when a bank comes between AR and AP, they create credit risk or the need for risk underwriting. When you match AR and AP, you can actually see that that collateral that AR that you're looking at matches some other company's AP and you know there's an intent to pay and you know that the credit behind that payer is quite good, then there's some interesting things you can do to eliminate risk in the provisioning of working capital. But the challenge is, how do you get that match for the AR? So that, that was something that stuck in my head for a while and I left, I retired as chairman and CEO of the bank in 2000 to go some other, I'm sure, Wild-eyed financial people into the business of e-commerce and e-payment transactions. And I built a company there, but early on in that period of time, 2002 or 2003, I can't recall. Very difficult time. We built a very large business. We had a great deal of accounts receivable, but it was a very difficult time in the early thousands. There weren't a lot of VCs looking to put more money into companies. We were VC back. There weren't any banks to loan to a company that was barely raising either, and maybe at that time losing money. But we had a lot of accounts receivable. My CFO came to me one day and said, we're going to miss payroll. And I was stuck. We didn't have a lot of cash on the balance sheet. But it was the timing of the AR that we had out that we thought we were going to receive that had been postponed by some of our largest clients, putting us under a cash crunch. And so I did what every desperate CEO does or founder does. I began calling companies that I had, that I had AR from, AP to them, asking them if they could pay early. And I realized that was a very inefficient, very risky thing to do. I also realized that if there was a marketplace where you could make an offer on your AR to somebody who has the AP to pay you earlier, there was no credit risk. If they were going to pay you at some point in time in the future, paying you currently wasn't going to increase credit. It was just going to increase, perhaps, and they would lose a little bit of income that they would have on that money if they delayed and they had it invested in some vehicle. But really, there was no credit risk. There was really just horizon pollution. And in this case, paying early with the discount was the way we ended up saving our business and making payroll. And after we sold that company, I thought about all of the challenges relative to risk-based underwriting. All the started I started to had as a banker and then started I had as a founding CEO of a, the commerce Company back in the day. And thought, why not see if there's a way to get as much accounts payable as possible into a marketplace, and then match that to all of the AR that those suppliers to that particular company have. And that's what we did. So we built C2FO to match all the world's AP and all the world's accounts receivable.
0: Was your vision for C2FO at the very beginning the same vision that has continued ever since, or did you have some adjustments and bumps along the road?
1: We've been pretty fortunate. We have not had to change. The only thing that I would know that I, I had wrong was that I missed the component of scale and I thought we would be less volume but higher discounts. I had underestimated the elasticity of demand in a very low-cost, convenient access marketplace. And I also missed the fact that there were very, very large companies, global 100s, who would participate in the market not as payers but as receivers. So, Companies that would look at accelerating cash from one quarter in the future to the current quarter. And doing that, they could make their DSO ratios work out. They could make the cash on balance sheet work out. So those were the two things. I thought we would be a higher yield environment. I thought we would probably, I never imagined we would see such large enterprises participate in the market as takers, if you could.
0: Now, Sandy, you have been a banker. You have been... Uh, founder of e-commerce, uh, but founding a fintech is quite different than finding an e-commerce company because mm-hmm. uh, the ramp-up period is much longer, right? And you're dealing with so many regulatory hurdles. Can you tell us a little bit more about this concept? Sure.
1: Well, first, the B2B that I started was called East Out, later Perfect Commerce, and now is on the London Stock Exchange under the name of, of, I'm remembering after several acquisitions, Proactus or something like that. Not a great exit, but a good company that we built in a difficult time. I'm pleased that it got to where it was. But it wasn't an e-commerce company before uh, B2C. It was a B2B company. So we still, we cut our teeth. A lot of the team that's with me now was, I won't say a lot, many of the original team at CQFO were from the team at perfect commerce. So we always understood enterprise sell, uh, and that is right in the fintech space for what we do it's B2B, what the e commerce company was that we built before was B2B, what I had done in the bank was also largely B2B. Where the bank is called UNB Financial. My brother now runs it. But we we made our business on small and mid sized commercial loans and deposits. So a very commercial middle market bank. So that's always been in my blood and always something I've been interested in to pursue. In our space today we're very fortunate in that we don't have a lot of regulation. So what we do is, is match all of that AP. I think it's something on the order of two or three trillion dollars now of AP and AR in the market where we take XYZ large companies AP. We're able to show that intent to pay to all of their myriad suppliers. And by the way, we do it with their customers as well. So we operate on both sides of the balance sheet, the AP side for the central mode and the AR side. So if you think about the construct, a central node would be a large corporate department. We might have a, we might engage them initially to go create a marketplace for their suppliers to be paid early. But they also have a lot of business customers. And so now we've built another side on the AR. Some of those business customers might like to pay more slowly. So on one side, a use of cash can be a payment to a supplier. Another use of cash for the central node can be a delayed receipt of cash from one of their customers. And then you have all sorts of interesting gives and takes across both sides of the balance sheet. I have a supplier who's offering 5.3% APR to be paid early. Oh, I have a customer who's offering 6.7% APR to be able to pay late. And you can find ways to do things both on the AR side and the AP side to make the market more fluid. But to your point about FinTech regulations, we're not in the payment stream. And we'll do 500 $600, 700000000 of early payment or working capital funding in a given day but we're not the ones actually moving the money. So if you think of us as an exchange, the way you would think about NYSE, CBOE, Nasdaq, or be on the board of CBOE here in the United States, you don't. When you are executing the trade for equity, you don't make a check payable to CBOE; you make it payable to your broker. So we're the exchange, and there are other entities that manage the money. So all we do is price discovery, basically, for the early delivery or late delivery of cash as a were between central nodes and the edge nodes called suppliers and or their customers.
0: Before we go any further into the business, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the company that you run and the company culture. I know you've publicly said in the past that C2FO is the most interesting business that you've ever led and, and it has the best team that you've ever led. Can you tell us a little bit more about that team and what kind of company culture yeah. you have?
1: Well, the best part about it. That I don't know that I'm leading anymore. We have we've been blessed with a really great model, and that model has attracted fantastic customers on both sides of the house—the AR and the AP side—and because of that, we've had very good growth from the very beginning. I said something the other day to our CPO. I said something like, "When the book is good, it starts to write itself. The chapters just almost seem to be self-populated by the book." Now, that's because we've got extraordinary people inside this model, taking care of extraordinary customers. And so I'm at the stage now, lucky enough to be able to start a company, a couple of companies, and to have C2FO, you know, been the, the guy calling folks in India to get them to accelerate payments. And then my wife wonder, what was I doing on the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning? So I was the head of SRM, supplier relationship management, I was a head of enterprise sales, guy. I was a CFO, a money raiser, et cetera. Now, it's not a question of leading, it's a question of sort of understanding the difference between guardrails and speed bumps. And my job is to eliminate speed bumps and to make sure there are guardrails so
0: people can go faster. Got it, that makes sense. Great, so let's talk a little bit about a white paper that you've recently introduced. Uh, you were obviously going through unprecedented crisis. Every single business out there has been affected, but particularly small businesses have been affected even more, right? And these are some of the main businesses that you serve, right? Tell us a little bit about this white paper and about your plan and your proposal to the government to help small businesses.
1: So first, uh, we serve, I guess it's now pushing up to 500,000 business customers all around the world. A lot of them still in the United States. But we made the proposal not just in the United States. We made it in uh, the U.K. and areas of the NIO that but also were listening, and we've been very strong in making sure this voice is heard in India in particular because small biz is such a large part of the Indian economy. because well, position was pretty simple, and that was like, the financial institutions, and I'm still on the board of the bank where I was CEO, I I have a lot of great friends who are bankers. And our bank here in the Midwest, UMB Financial, did an extraordinary job with PPP. A lot of banks didn't, uh, and it was very difficult for a lot of small businesses to be able to get the attention of the bank in order to get this borrowing that was so fundamental to their continued existence. And it's still a problem. When we look at the Main Street Loan Program, it's not been well-received by a lot of corporations. I think we need to know about it the the PPP. But coming back to our proposal, our position was very simple. Large center nodes, those giant enterprises that we do business with, we went first to the biggest companies in the world. And said, let's build a marketplace for you to be able to pay your suppliers early and or if you've got business customers to allow your business customers to pay you later. And we'll figure out price and we'll do the right thing for price discovery. And we'll do a true marketplace for liquid flows of working capital on both sides of your balance sheet. Now, it turns out that the average G2000 or F1000 company in the United States has around 1,300 unique small businesses in its supply chain. And they owe them... Something on the order if I'm remembering the math, ballpark it at 120 or a, between, somewhere between 70 and 120 million of paint on any given day. A lot of those central nodes, a lot of those big companies, because they had to take care of themselves first, were slowing down payment. We saw this happen. I think everyone saw this happen across the board. The first thing you do is take care of your own house. And then if you've got the capacity to do something more than that, you can expand and think about your ecosystem. But in times of crisis, everyone drew in. And in times of crisis, in this particular case, companies began to pay slower. This has been a world of hurt on small businesses, in particular, in that in that company's supply chain. And a world of hurt also. Imagine if we could have allowed liquidity to be offered to small business customers of that company so they could pay later. We would have solved, again, on both sides of the balance sheet. Our particular proposal, though, was for the government to make direct loans to the center node, that center enterprise, specifically for the purpose of of paying their suppliers early, small and mid-sized suppliers early. This eliminates the need for 1,200 and 1,300 small businesses to go to the bank. One node, one loan to one F1000 and one G2000 company could satisfy massive capital requirements for 1,300 companies in their supply chain, and these are the small and mid-sized businesses in the average F1000 and G2000 supply chain. Uh, we're, we're pleased that it... It has been very well received. Being well received by government versus execution of government is another thing. But as I said, we're hopeful that in this next tranche, this next iteration of potential funding, that idea will get implemented because everyone with whom we've met understands the efficacy of central distribution. You also have less credit risk if you're going to make the money available to that large enterprise than you do in underwriting each and every one of those supplies. And as we come back out of the crisis, Then what happens? We can go back to normal payment to the supplier, which allows for cash then to be used to repay the government. So it's a very, very easy way to put capital in the hands of companies immediately, with very, very little credit.
0: Oh, that makes a lot of sense. You're focusing at the top of the waterfall, right? And you're utilizing government resources as best as possible. Sandy, one concern that I've certainly heard in the industry is you know a lot of these large institutions, they enter into a supply chain finance program, and yeah. to allow their suppliers to enter, they extend the payment terms a little bit, understanding that you know you're still going to get paid early yeah. because you know who cares about the payment terms? You now have access to this program. But if this program is ever gone, it's going to be hard to readjust those payment terms. Do you have any thoughts about this angle of the industry?
1: I don't particularly, you know, you you and I both have finance backgrounds. I am not the giant advocate or proponent of supply chain finance. I think bringing in third-party capital creates credit risk, as you and I just discussed. We're trying to build a marketplace that doesn't have credit risk by allowing companies to pay those they owe money early. So if I loan money to that supplier as a banker, I buy that account received as an SCF person. Yes, you can have recourse, I suppose you one can have recourse back to the payer, but you still have a degree of credit risk because you've introduced a third-party capital source. And a bilateral negotiation between those who have money and those to whom the money is owed, if you know you're going to pay for that product or service and you put it into your AP system, paying that entity early, paying that supplier early is a no-credit risk opportunity for you as you disperse your money. And it turns out that you can usually get six, seven, eight percent APR. So a riskless six, seven, eight percent APR in today's world—that's a pretty good deal. And of course, it's a good deal as well for the recipient of the money because in many cases, the financial systems all around the world are growing in. This time of crisis, and capital is not there for that supply. SCF is okay and has a place, and we do bring third-party capital when needed. If a buyer doesn't want to use their money. But our, our primary responsibility is really to really make sure that we've got this beautiful market where we're matching all of that AP and AR. Where I really object to SCF is when we get into, and I say we, because I am of the finance industry, or when the finance industry folks who are proponents and advocates of this get into 180, 210, 360-day terms, and when they're doing it to generate capital or cash for themselves, basically borrowing from their supply chain. Oftentimes, the supply chain, especially if small and mid-sized businesses, have a higher cost of capital than their central bank. So I think we have the checks and balances. I think, I think SCF can be well done. I think SCF can bring lower-cost borrowing, lower-cost funding to supply chains if done properly. And I don't think it has to be always about stretching out things. So like anything else, people are going to chase to excess, chase to extremes, and it's not going to end well for those who do that. But in moderation and done well, have can be very, very effective for large companies in their supply chain. I just would counsel all to resist the temptation to move to the extreme of the edges because, as I said, that that's not going to end well for anyone. That makes
0: sense. And for everything else,
1: there's C2FO. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a commercial for C2FO, but rather understanding how, how capital flows work, right? We're happy to do whatever we can in the equation.
0: Got it, got it. I was reading, uh, Sandy, that out of the suppliers and small businesses that are participating in your programs, minority owned businesses tend to have a much higher participation rate, and particularly during the crisis. Can you tell us a little bit more about this?
1: Thank you for doing that. You've clearly done your research. It's not just during the crisis, we are seeing and this is what was so interesting for me because we went back and said, let's take a look. What can we do? Right, we can put forward the small business supplier protection plan. We can battle political powers and do some like it, et cetera, and we'll see if we can get it executed. But what can we do in and of ourselves? What can we do that we can control? Well, we created small business marketplaces, sub-marketplaces inside C2FO where our partners, those large buyers, agreed to create. We have marketplaces today inside C2FO where we are, donating, that wasn't the right word, eliminating or greatly reducing our transaction revenue share because the buyer, the central node, has decided that they agree with us that we should be making 1%, 2 and 3% APR fundings available to small and mid-sized business businesses. So very quickly, we're scouring through the database, making sure the small businesses are appropriately placed, this is a small business validated. That's a small business. Great. Let's get them into the 1.5% APR marketplace because this is the right thing to do at a time when they're struggling. And so kudos and hats off to so many of our buyer partners who have agreed to this. And, and you know, as I said, we've waived a great to reduce our transaction fees commensurate with the no cost funding that's out there. We did the exact same thing for minority. Gosh, starting a little bit before the current racial crisis because we were looking at so many small businesses and also seeing that they were from minority women-owned business status. And we're like, well, this is kind of cool. How do we think about the double whammy, the double benefit of doing great stuff for small biz and doing great stuff for disadvantaged populations? And it could be, it could be businesses that are owned by disabled vets. It could be businesses that are owned by disabled folks. It could be businesses that are owned by any population, and they tend to be small business owners could right, be small businesses. What can we do to make things right there? And as we studied it, we knew small businesses participated in our marketplace at a higher frequency than large businesses. But what I didn't know was that minority biz and women-owned biz, same cohort size, so not small to large. so still small to small, mid to mid, large to large. The participation rate is and the registration rate to become customers is about 1.5, 1.6x their non-minority cohort peers so that was super interesting to me we knew small business was not getting a fair shake from the financial space and i I suppose we knew as well with diverse businesses you're probably not getting well they weren't getting a fair shake from the financial system but to see this sort of empirically demonstrated it tells you that the financial system again i I want to be careful because it's not all members in the financial system but it does tell you that we've got a bigger issue in the financial system. If we see that sort of minority and women-owned and disadvantaged owned business take inside C2FO, it tells you they're not getting what they need from the financial system. Not all not all financial players I can't it. Definitely not all financial players are problematic, but the system itself is doing a pretty poor job of serving small and mid-sized businesses and you know, a particularly poor job at serving minority-owned and women's owned businesses.
0: Certainly... What you're telling us and then C2FO itself, I guess, proves the need for all this fintech innovation that we're seeing, right? It proves that the market needs this kind of innovations and not just for minorities, but for all customers. So you have a global operation. Can you tell us some of the markets that you are outside of the U.S.?
1: Almost everywhere, not necessarily dominant in any I mean, I, can, I suppose we're fairly strong in, in certain of the major economies. I, I think we have clients in 167 countries. We operate in 70 different currencies, and I oh, really need to increase the number, but I, I don't think it's any more than 12 languages. But um, when we went to build C2FO, as I said, we initially went to very large companies. One was our very first companies. dashed back when we had only 15 people in the company, and now we're about 500 we were deliriously lucky to get Costco to say yes when we were a tiny little nothing company and we've remained a great partner. I hope we've remained a great partner to win as well. But if you sign up Costco, their supply chain is all around the world. So day one, congratulations, little 13 person company in Kansas City. Poof. You got to go global real fast. And that was sort of what we did. We were rapidly expanding with our early customers, early buy side clients to connect to and get all of their suppliers all around the world in the marketplace because they didn't want to just have it be for the United States. Their their supply chain was global, so we had to be a
0: global provider on day one. You've been global from day one. So we were talking before we started recording of how you haven't seen a lot of other companies do the same. I mean, I personally have seen this model pop up in, in places like Mexico and Brazil, but you're right. I mean, there aren't too many other companies. Doing it, why do you think that is?
1: It's a super good question. Uh, It was even a heated debate inside our board for a number of, gosh, I think for a number of years. And I'm not sure we've come to a resolution even yet. If our goal is to see 20 or 30% of the world's APAR trade be facilitated through an underwritten buy, let's say without credit risk. Our market and markets like us, why wouldn't we want there to be more of a proliferation? You think about CBOE, NASDAQ, and then this other board batch, which led me to be on the board of CBOE. We interoperate with each other. The exchanges interoperate to and trade equities or options. And so why wouldn't we do the same thing for working capital? So I'm, I still, I still think about that. I, I wonder if that would hasten the day towards that tipping point of flows. I mean, the world has, Two hundred and forty trillion of B2B payments in the course of a year. And here we are the largest player in the world by a long shot with two or three trillion. There's a lot more for us to do. And yeah, we we'll grow very rapidly. Would we we'll cooperate with another marketplace to interoperate? I think we will. It's a question that still bothers me. And I the only convenient excuse I have is that most finance people don't understand tech and most tech people don't understand finance. Now, that's changing, as you point out, with the proliferation of fintech companies, but they're focused, a lot of them are focused on consumers. Uh, they're not, a lot of new tech companies, financially, otherwise, really don't like the long enterprise B2B sales cycle. You know, it's a booger, and nobody likes it, but in particular, it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and you're dealing with very large corporations, as I said. You know, there's a reason we were doing Card wheels and flips when we landed Costco as a 13 person little scrub company in Kansas City. And that stuff doesn't happen very often. And so it's hard to build a uh, scale with a fintech company if you're in the B2Bs, especially in the large b 2 b space. So I think that's also part of the problems. It's not necessarily a capital efficient business either. It's not terribly difficult. I mean, tech, you know, yes, the tech is super important and you know, our team has built a great platform and you know, as I said, we'd share it with others. I guess in many ways, when you said you were global from day one, in which we were the customers of the world, we bring in 60, 70 million electronically approved AP Fed invoices into our system every night from companies all around the world, and we push them out to 1.5 million businesses all around the world, 500,000 of whom have signed on to be customers and participate in early payment or otherwise in our marketplace. We're not just doing early payment and price discovery. We're also helping another million businesses see when they're going to be paid by their main customers or see what they, see if they can be paid, see if they can pay their central node main customer or slowly. So we do a lot more than just, just John something. 500,000 customers doing, doing work with us is a lot, but if we push another million information and invoices to another million businesses and that platform wasn't cheap to build. It took a lot of time and you had to build a lot of redundancies because you're pretty critical for a lot of businesses around the world. But it doesn't feel like a throw some money at it, see if you get traction, and if you do keep throwing money at it, in our space, just throw a hell of a lot of money at it even before you have traction because there's no F-100 company that's going to even think about doing business with you unless you've got redundancies and security and you've got gravitas. Make sure that your systems are relatively safe, it's not knock on wood.
0: And now you're measuring this astonishing volumes of data and, and transactions that you're processing. Uh, that, I mean, data is one of the most important assets these days, and a lot of companies build their business models off the back of, of data, right? Mm-hmm. Have you considered expanding to other business lines using all this data that you're generating?
1: It does help us. We have an operation inside uh, the company called C2FO Capital Finance. We have another operation called Dynamic Supplier Finance. And and Dynamic Supplier Finance is when that center node does not wish to use their money to allow their customers to pay them more slowly or to pay their suppliers early. And that's when we bring in sometimes vast amounts of money facilitated by major banks on behalf of that center node to move to their suppliers or their customers. Cap Finance, C2FO Capital Finance, is when we're making direct loans to suppliers or customers, but most of the time they're suppliers, whose buyer we do not have in the market. So for every XYZ chip manufacturer or for every ABC retailer or one, two, three, a manufacturer, we may not have all of a particular supplier's customers. So we might have this company, but we don't have that company. So the supplier says to us, look, you've got about 30 or 40% of all of my customers, right? So I'm selling to lots of businesses all around the world. 30 to 40% of them happen to be in your marketplace. Great. That makes you, that makes you very relevant to me, but you're not 100%. So how can you help me with this other 60 or 70? And that's where we begin to use the data and the market to think about how we can make loans more effectively and at lower risk and lower price, therefore, to those suppliers whose buyers are not yet with us. As I said, our job is to be 100% 100% match between AP and AR, but you know, I'm 55 It's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. I'm going to have to have someone younger coming to get the 100% matching of AP and AR across the world. So we have to build a hack so that we have a solution for a supplier where we don't have all of the buyers that that supplier has in the marketplace. And that hack is capital finance, where we can use data to make more well-informed loans. I would have, when I was running UMB, as I came up as a lender and said, you need to like I was mentioning before. To have data that we have today, I would have killed for. It. And it's not so much, oh gosh, you now this proprietary. No, the whole point of the data is how do I make better informed, lower risk, and therefore lower priced capital available to as many businesses as we can around the world. Because our position is, we believe every business in the world should have the capital they need to grow. The first thing we do is to de-risk and provision of that capital by matching AP and on our marketplace. Great. The next thing we do is pour resources into the to make sure the marketplace gets to scale. Even though we're not at scale, or even if we're scaling, there's still stuff that we don't have. So how do we oh let's build third party capital solutions using data as a new type
0: of cloud? Makes absolute sense. Sandy, we have quite a few entrepreneurs listening to this podcast and I'm sure they would love to hear about your fundraising journey. You've successfully attracted almost $400 million in financing, and you brought some of the top industry names on board, Union Square Ventures, part. SoftBank, Temasek, you name it, right? Tell us about this journey and you know maybe what's, uh, what's the best way to manage that relationship between entrepreneurs That's and good. VCs?
1: So first, just to those who are listening, remember when people talk about, we don't actually talk much about how much we raise our valuations, but just a, a quick side note or caveat, and that is $400 million number, $390 million number, in all cases for all companies, usually includes both primary and secondary. So I try to be a little bit more capital efficient than what those numbers would indicate. So some of that, of course, is secondary. When other shareholders were taken out by new shareholders came in, and always, at least knock on wood so far, they had a nice and profitable exchange for those who have been on this early. Now, talking about folks who have been on this early, my advice to, and we've got lots of senior entrepreneurs, but you know, a young person coming along building a company, I've said this a hundred times, I've said it once, my hope is that you could stomach the lowest value you could possibly got from the best quality VC you can possibly find for your first round. It's exactly the lucky bucket into which we fell with Union Square. And they they were lower than others, but not that much. So we didn't have to stomach a, a massive low offer. I think they came in at I was just talking to John about this. I think John Butcher used our partner, I think they came in at either twenty or twenty five million. And that was after we had Costco, after we had a couple other big ones. I think there towards the rest of Costco and maybe Walgreens at that time. We were building out the retail vertical. market was growing rapidly. I suppose we could have held out for more money. But the reason I'm telling you this is that, again, i again very lucky to have been introduced to Union Square. I didn't really understand how lucky I was until I, I, I realized that the B and the C round were kind of already done, as long as we didn't screw up. Because Union Square had a reputation that was such that they had folks who would follow on and follow on. And so we were very lucky not to get with Union Square. And in retrospect, I should have been even more strategic thinking about valuation and reputation. Union Square Union Square pretty much assured that we had not just that first round done, but the next two. Of course we had not we had to make sure the business continued to grow, but my advice is the highest reputation and best firm. And if it comes from a low valuation, if you stomach it, take
0: it. Great, great. Well, Sandy, to wrap this conversation up, let's talk a little bit about your view of the next couple of years. Obviously, we're all working remotely now. How do you envision you know, a, a possible return to normalcy and, and how will this look within C2FO?
1: We are gradually back in the office. It's been a little bit easier than being on the coast, so I think there's, I just read that Missouri's on the rise again. Happily, real estate is relatively cheap in Kansas City, certainly considered more cheap I think by orders of magnitude than New York or San Francisco. So we have the luxury of having a lot of office space and wide open places where people can work without being on top of each other. And I think we're we're coming back at about one third of the population currently, and probably be depending on how things go back to about half in the next month. You ask, it's it sort of depends entirely on what people want to do. If they want to stay working for Paul, that's great. I'm happy to support it. We're, we're delighted. We are again very fortunate because as an alternative de-risk provider of working capital for a marketplace exchange like ours, in crisis we're not troubled by risk-based provisioning and working capital. So our market continued to grow in certain areas. and others, it didn't. Essential goods, non-essential goods, you sort of saw flip there. But, you know, We're one of those few companies, I think, that has been able to be up year over year. And while we're not precisely where I want us to be in terms of budget, you know, I'd like us to be growing back at 70%. We're not at 70% right now. But as like I said, we're up nicely year over year. If we can do that, working from home, if we have some, I would suggest productivity gains from product and from tech, because they're not being interrupted by guys like me and other business people hounding them for distracting questions and answers that I need. Because they're in a little bit more remote cocoon, I think they've actually become more productive. I do think they hunger still, and I was just at the company early on Wednesday. We had a coffee truck come, you know, food rolls, cinnamon rolls, things like this and had lots of the folks come to the company. They didn't have to go into the office, but they just wanted to hang out with each other. We're a weird company in a sense that, unlike East Coast, West Coast, we don't have a lot of turnover. also, to the recap, this sort of typical to the Midwest. We don't have much turnover. The people, therefore, build pretty significant relationships with each other. They genuinely enjoy those relationships and enjoy their co-workers. And many of them have been with us I looked back at a picture the other day of our first 30 or 40 folks who were celebrating something before us. us. And uh, I think I counted of the you know, 26 people, 17 were still with us. And I go back 10 years. So we genuinely enjoy and appreciate so this. I'm getting a sense that our team wants to get together. They want to get together safely. So we're doing more outside events. We're, on Friday, we're doing you know, some more food trucks coming to the office. Again, not for people necessarily to go into the office, but just to be together. Long-winded way of saying, I think people are still going to want to have that that contact when it's safe. I don't buy that everything is now going to be remote. However, I'm very pleased for people to be remote if that's what they wish. So I think we're going to be a much more blended work environment, not just in C2O, but I think that's going to happen globally. But I, I think if we isolate people in their cocoons forever, I think that's going to do some harm to the culture of the company and maybe even to the, to the individual themselves. I think most humans are fairly social, Uh, even introverts like, like me and most of our tech team, but we still want to be, we still want to have that ability to engage, even if we want to be able to distance ourselves and we can to go recharge. We still want to be with other people and have stimulation of ideas and conversation. So we're trying to do that in the safest way possible.
0: Andy, before we go, we always like to ask our guests about some of their hobbies outside of work. I know you have plenty of hobbies, but I specifically wanted to ask about your passion for art. And I know that you you're an art collector, and you know, was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, well, you must most it. It's also a company, so we built a company called the Collector's Fund, which was the first art fund in the United States. And the idea there was. Why not build basically a virtual museum with a commercial sort of pathos? So museums museums don't usually sell works. If they do sell a work, they have to put it back into another work or they lose the recordation. I and mean, the museum associations don't like to see museums selling work. Okay, great. That's the museum world. We actually gave the museum here in Kansas City, and another side of my family gave the museum in said it town here in the Midwest. What if we could create a virtual museum? And what if we could do it with a hundred families all around the world, in this case all around the United States? And what if we could create art that traveled home to home to home? So in this case, it also accomplishes diversification. So I came, I was actually adopted into the family where I am now. I was lucky to be adopted into the family that been in banking for four generations and they'd made some money and so they had some art. I was putting my money in startup companies, sometimes losing, sometimes winning, didn't have a lot of money to put into art. In order for art to be a good asset class, it has to be diversified. So we ended up pulling together a hundred families, five hundred thousand to a million each. You build a fifty to hundred million dollar art collection, then you rotate the art through the family's homes three times per year. So we have a team that comes in and, and you know, every gosh, every hundred days, it's like Christmas. The art's changed in certain of the walls and that's Sherfield Porter became a Helen Frankenthaler. The Frankenthaler became a Joan Mitchell. The Mitchell became a Nevelson. The Nevelson became an Andy Wyatt. And that's, that's been a lot of fun. So that's been, and in some ways, it's sort of, it's sort of along the lines of other companies that we've built. This idea of, uh, sharing versus consuming. That's just similar to what we do at C2FO. Right, we're basically creating a marketplace for the exchange of capital. We've created a marketplace for the exchange of art. We're consuming the various assets in a very efficient manner. I like this idea of cutting the middle man out, whether it's the museum, which is fine, or some of the you know, private museums or private galleries are sometimes fairly intimidating folks. So we, we made it a lot of fun to buy art. We made it very educational. We helped people get into the art class as an asset in a very effective way through a fund. That was a So I, the reason I started that, frankly, was I didn't have enough money to buy the art that I wanted. So I decided to do it with a bunch of friends and build a better, build a better art
0: reflection it. Fantastic. I'm, I'm glad I asked. Well, Sandy, thanks again for joining us. This has uh, really been a treat. Congratulations for all of your success. No doubt we'll see a lot more to come, and you know, you're know, you always welcome to join us on campus.
1: Well, thank you. Hopefully you will be back on campus soon. Are you going to go back? Is it?
0: Is it going, What's the official word now? Remote for now. We'll see yeah. 2021. <laughs>
1: Uh, it, my son just went back to Syracuse, so he's he's hoping that it will continue, but I, I don't know that it will. I've got I've enjoyed my time with the children and enjoyed having them at home, especially since the ranch needs lots of work. But I think they're very eager to get back to school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, right. care, my friend. Thank it's you, Sandy. Have you. a good one. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.